This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. On this episode, we continue with interviews recorded at the 2017 American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference. 2017 was the third year that Norm Bolin and Brian Mack from the Fort Plain Museum led a team of local people in arranging the conference. Norm and Brian were inspired by similar conferences that have been held in Williamsburg, Virginia. The Mohawk Valley Conference has invited speakers and had attendees from Canada who are descended from the Loyalists, European colonials in the Mohawk Valley and elsewhere in what became the United States, who had to leave their homes because of the American Rebellion in the 18th century. Gavin Watt, a native of Toronto, spoke at the 2017 conference. Gavin Watt is the author of nine books on the subjects of the Loyalist, including his just-released book, Fire and Desolation, the Revolutionary War's 1778 campaign as waged from Quebec and Niagara against the American frontiers. A historical reenactor, Gavin Watt is past commander and founder of the King's Royal Yorkers and past commander of the Northern Brigade. He's also an honorary vice president of the United Empire Loyalist Association. Information about his career and books may be found at gavinwatt.ca. He has authored several books about the Mohawk Valley, including The Burning of the Valleys, Daring Raids from Canada Against the New York Frontier in the Fall of 1780, and The Rebellion in the Mohawk Valley, the St. Ledger Expedition of 1777. You're listening to Bob Cudmore on the Historian's Podcast. Bob Cudmore here again at the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference, and it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Gavin Watt. Uh, when did you get uh, started in researching the revolution or, or the rebellion from the perspective of, uh, of, of someone from Canada? 1975, Bob, and the reason I did is the announcements were out all over the television and the press about the bicentennial of the American Revolution. And I sat there and I thought, you know, Canadians will be sitting watching American television and there'll be all this propaganda about the American Revolution. And all the Canadian heads will be going up and down, up and down, agreeing with it. And it's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. Canada started with the Loyalists, English-speaking Canada, and they won't even have a clue about what what all that was generated from. The uh, Loyalists in Canada today, or descendants of Loyalists, you were asked uh, or peppered with questions after your very well-received talk, and somebody said, well, how many Loyalists or or Loyalist descendants are there? And I was kind of surprised. It's sort of a small number, isn't it? As I said, Bob, I have no idea. Like, I, I don't know what the statistic is. But it just strikes me, considering the, the physical makeup of our population, that it can't be very large. And uh, other people have argued that it, it has to be much larger. So I said something like 7%. Mm-hmm. And other people have argued, no, no, it's got to be 30%. Okay. And there are okay. Canadians that are doing the arguing with me. But nonetheless, uh, I stand that it's not a lot. And you were also asked, I mean, do you know, does the average Canadian care about this? 
and the average Canadian doesn't know anything about it. That's <laughs> it's not whether they care or not. They just okay. don't know. Oh well. But so with some of your work, another point you made that I thought was very interesting was talking about the split between the Oneidas and the Mohawks, which was you said had kind of roots in religion, not the original religion of the of the Native Americans, but uh, the the various uh, kinds of Christianity. Forms of Christianity, yeah. correct? Yes, yes, and and it's I I've wondered all along because the Oneida and the Mohawk were extremely close in the Confederation, and the, as a Confederacy members, the Mohawks were the Eastern Door, and right beside them were the Oneida, and they were intermarried because that was very typical. Joseph Brandt, for instance, was married to an, an Oneida, and what what is it that split them? There, there's got to be some. And it appears to be religion, and it appears to be the success of the Congregationalists with their outreach projects to the Oneida and the Tuscarora, who were very close to the Oneida, uh, that tipped the balance. Because the, the Mohawk were Anglican, and, and I wouldn't say every Mohawk espoused. No, was there a lot of them that became Catholic? No, that's in the north. So, so after they got up to Canada, and that migration was long before the uh, the American Revolution, and there was a lot of, of Mohawk in the north, in Aquasasti mm-hmm. and uh, Kanasataki and and Caughnawaga. Uh, the the ones in the south were were Anglican, and 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 Brant, for example, Brant was a devoted Anglican. That's Joseph Brandt. Joseph Brandt. Uh, in fact, you've written a, a book about Joseph Brandt, who was a Mohawk chieftain and his uh, raids on uh, the Mohawk Valley during the Revolution. Yes, I've had lots of material on Brandt because he was one of the most active loyalists in the North and, and critically important um, and, and suffered for it. You know, it, oh, well. Right. And one, uh, maybe one point, they're about to get going with the last day of the conference as we talk with Gavin Watt. I heard. I think it was our, it was our friend Peter Betts that asked you this uh, question about uh, the tomb of John Johnson. Yes. John Johnson, the son of Sir William John Johnson, forced to go up north uh, to, to what is now Canada, but then came back and led military raids right to the end of the war. Uh, where is he buried and what's the is, issue with his burial spot. Well, what had happened, he's south of the, of the St. Lawrence, south of Montreal, and I can't remember the name of the village. It's uh, Canadien, it's French, mm-hmm. uh, but the he's on Mount Johnson, Okay. and he had a beautiful home there, and they built a crypt, the, the family, and Sir John was buried there, and his wife, and some of his children, and the farm was bought out. The property was bought out by uh, Canadians, and they plowed over the crypt, absolutely destroyed it. And the, and the man who did it, the man who was physically responsible, I don't know whether he drove a bulldozer or what it was, he, when he found out what he had done, was terribly upset. And it had nothing to do with his heritage, but he just he understood that Sir John had been critically important in, the, in that area. <clears throat> because during the War of 1812, he was the Brigadier General of Militia. And so he was very involved in restoring the crypt. Oh. So just a couple of years ago, the crypt uh, has been totally uh, restored, and uh, bones are now being placed back in the, in the crypt. And I was at the dedication ceremony for it, which was very nice. 
very, very small attendance, however. Seven percent? No, I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. Well, Gavin Watt, thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. Nice to nice to meet you. The leadoff speaker at this year's conference was William Fowler, Jr., a distinguished professor of history at Northeastern University in Boston. He received his B.A. from Northeastern and his Master's and Ph.D. from the University of Notre Dame. Dr. Fowler was a history professor at Northeastern from 1971 until 1998 when he became director of the Massachusetts Historical Society, a job he held for eight years. He then returned to Northeastern. His main area of expertise is New England maritime history. Another area of interest is the history of the French and Indian War. Dr. Fowler is the author of several books dealing with American history, including Under Two Flags, The Navy in the Civil War, Silas Talbot, Captain of Old Ironsides, Rebels Under Sail, The Navy in the Revolution, and Empires at War, The French and Indian War, and the Struggle for North America. His latest book is An American Crisis, George Washington and the Dangerous Two Years After Yorktown, and his presentation to the conference was about this chapter in the life of George Washington. You're listening to Bob Cudmore on the Historian's Podcast. Bob Cudmore here at the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley a conference, and it's a pleasure to talk to William Fowler, a junior, who's a pro- longtime professor at Northeastern University. He's written uh, widely on um, American history. And you have a, a new book that you talked about uh, today having to do with uh, George Washington. Uh, what particular time period does this deal with? Bob, this deals with the last two years of the Revolution, uh, from the battle at Yorktown in October of 1781 uh, through the completion of independence in the Treaty of Paris in 1783. These are the years that are often uh, discounted by historians and the populace at large. They think that the war ended, the revolution ended in 81 at Yorktown. And, of course, that wasn't the case at all. It went on for two more important years, years of great crisis. And Washington had to deal somewhat with, uh, maybe it's all going overboard to call it a mutiny, but sometimes his officers and soldiers were not happy. No, they weren't happy at all. And indeed, during the American Revolution, there were several mutinies in the American army for a variety of reasons. Uh, But the period from 81 to 83 was particularly tenuous because the war, at least as the soldiers saw it, was over. They didn't know what their future rested, what was going to happen to them. They hadn't been paid. They were unhappy. So it was Washington's task to keep the army together because the British were still holding New York and other places in America. If the American army dissolved in that period after Yorktown, then the British might well have taken the offensive and might have ended the revolution in a different way. So he had, Washington had the dual challenge of keeping the army together and fending off the British. And his army then was located north of New York City in the Hudson Valley or around Newburgh. Is that the place? Yes, that's correct. After Yorktown, Washington moved his army uh, up the Hudson River to a place near Newburgh, New York, north, uh, north of West Point. It took that place because the British occupation of New York, New York City. And so he wanted to be in a place where he could move quickly should the British try to leave New York City. And there was this uh, incident with the uh, Washington and his officers where uh, there were, there, there were, some of the officers were going to have a meeting, and it sounded like this could be 
you know, outside of Washington's, they're going to have the meeting, and Washington hadn't called a meeting, uh, and this could uh, really be a problem for him. But you uh, described quite well how he was able to turn that around. Yes, a group of officers called for a meeting to be held uh, on March the 15th. It was a Saturday at noon. And they were gathered, according to the person who called the meeting, uh, to express their grievances against the Congress. There was great danger here because the concern was that these officers might take their troops with them and march on Philadelphia to force the Congress to give them the pay that they had not yet gotten. Uh, Washington heard of this, and of course he immediately canceled that meeting. He said they could not meet. And instead he designed his own meeting, and he called the officers together to meet at noon, March 15, 1783. The meeting was originally called with General Horatio Gates presiding. And so when General Gates called the meeting to order, uh, the gentlemen, the officers stood, and then suddenly uh, at the door stood the commander-in-chief, Washington himself. And they had not expected him to arrive, so this was a shock to everyone. But Washington came into the room, went before his men, and delivered to them what is now known as the Newburgh Address. It was an emotional speech that the commander-in-chief gave, begging his men, begging these officers, not to do anything that would sully their reputation. The war was over. Independence was almost achieved. This was not the time now to turn the clock back. He told them that I stand here as citizen and soldier, citizen being the first word that he used. His appeal to his officers turned the tide, and the officers were willing, after hearing their commander-in-chief, were willing to wait to to have their grievances addressed by Congress. And so they adjourned. They did not rally. They did not march on Philadelphia. And at that one moment, I think we might say that Washington saved the American Republic. And also you say he was a great... uh a showman, or he was—he really carried this off well. I mean, there was some incident where, when he had finished the regular address, he was going to read something, and he and he couldn't read it, so he put on some eyeglasses, uh, and um, well, and then he said something that uh, really resonated with the soldiers. Washington loved theater. He was a great reader of Shakespeare, and he knew how to be dramatic. In in his own appearance, he was dramatic. He was a tall, well-built man. A, fine horseman, a great dancer, just a physical prowess. Uh, And so when he finished the Newburgh Address, when he finished this speech, he thought that he had lost the men because there was dead silence. And in that moment, he pulled out of his pocket a letter that he wanted to read to them from a congressman from Virginia. He began to read the letter, and he stumbled over the words. And as he stumbled over the words, he reached into his pocket, and he pulled out a pair of eyeglasses. No one in the audience had ever seen the commander-in-chief wear eyeglasses. He looked at the officers in front of him and said to them, Gentlemen, you must forgive me. My hair has grown gray and my eyes have grown dim in the service of my country. It was an extraordinary moment. He was the best actor in the army and carried it off very well. When he finished reading that letter, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. The officers were with him. They understood from that gesture the great sacrifices that he had made. Professor Fowler, thanks very much for talking with us. My pleasure, Bob. Thank you very much. If you enjoy the Historian's Podcast, we welcome your contributions to our GoFundMe campaign. It's easy to give at GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2017. If you want to donate by mail, send a check made out to Bob Cudmore to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. That's 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 
1-2-3-0-2. Thank you very much. You're listening to Bob Cutmore on the Historian's Podcast. At the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference at Fulton Montgomery Community College, lo and behold, uh, Peter Feynman is here. Uh, Peter, tell us about your interest in history. Well, I write a blog about the state of New York history. And what I'm concerned about is not simply what happened many years ago, but if I may quote from the Hamilton musical, who will tell the story? How are we doing in telling our own story as Americans and as New Yorkers about how we came to be who we are today? And if we don't do a good job, what are the consequences for both the country and the state if we all don't have a shared common narrative? And frequently you uh, read Peter Feynman's views on the New York History blog. Um, that we're speaking at the middle of the Saturday presentations at the conference. There were kind of three strong uh, presentations this morning, I thought. What do you think? Uh, yes, it was a, it's a good start. Well, actually, I was on the bus tour yesterday, so this is my second day here at the conference. As an example, when I was doing what I call teacher hostels, where we would visit sites in the Mohawk Valley and in Saratoga, one of our speakers, Eric Schnitzer, was one of the people we used to talk to, one of the people we used to meet. And uh, we'd have dinner with him, and he'd talk with the teachers about the Battle of Saratoga, which he says is the center of the universe, or no uh, disrespect to the people here in the Mohawk Valley who might say the exact opposite yesterday on our tour to Oriskany. Uh, but just as an example of he really has discovered something that no one else seems to really have known about before, which shows even if you have old stories, there are new wrinkles and angles that can change, as he brought out, the stereotypes. Peter often, uh, Peter Feynman often writes about um, how government is treating history, and, and you're, you're kind of a, a welcome critical voice. I mean, you're not afraid to criticize some of the things going on. You just did a uh, New York History blog a column in which you said uh, you uh, preferred when you heard Congressman Paul Tonko talking about history than what uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo had to say. What's the, what's the difference? I mean, they would both tell you that they're, uh, you know, eager to preserve our past. I'm glad you brought it up, but I want to clarify one thing. I'm writing a blog now called The State of New York History, which is separate from the John Warren blog you may be referring to, the New York State History. I used to write for him on a regular basis. Now I've been writing my own, which you can subscribe to at iHair.org, and I'll be happy to send it to you. But what I wrote in that column was I was comparing two visions of history where Paul's view, I, I don't really know him personally, but Congressman Tonko's view was looking at the role of history as a civic organization. And I compare it to the schools and libraries. Why? because all three institutions are chartered by the New York State Education Department. And just as no one would go to a library and say, you've got to turn a profit, why don't you raise your past due rates to cover the expense of operating the library? But somehow when we get to the history, we lose its importance to the social fabric of a community like a local school and a library, and we say, no, you have to turn a profit. You have to be like Niagara Falls. And that's more the governor's view and the path through history view and the regional economic development council views of funding where the importance of historical organizations for the health of a community and the health of the state 
is being shortchanged. And that's the problem I was contrasting with the congressman and the governor. Well, Peter, we get back to your lunch, and we'll see you again at the conference. Uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure having this opportunity, and it's nice to see you in person instead of just listening to you on the computer, as I usually do. Bob Cutmore at the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference. And it's a pleasure to talk to Phil Weaver. Uh, we spoke with uh, Phil from uh, at last year's uh, event about his many historical activities. What's the name of the consulting company you got? It's called Continental Consulting. It was started as, as a, liter- a literal name to go with the newsletter, which was called the Colonial Chronicle, that I did on the living history hobby. I briefly mentioned it last time, I believe, and... It was a newsletter ran about six years. I'm short one issue, and they got farther and farther behind. They were a quarterly uh, newsletter, and it went very, very well, but it was a cult following, and it got to be a little too hard to do. So what I've been doing is I branched out, and I started selling books and my own research, uh, uniform plates and things like this. And then I took, uh, a few years ago, I took all the special stuff on the Revolutionary War, part of it, because I also did F&I War a little bit, a little bit on the 1830 period, and I put the stuff together in a book called The Greatest Hits, The Rev War Years, and I've been, it's a self-published book, but we've been selling quite a few of them, and it's doing very, very well. I'm interested, because even I have picked up on the fact that aficionados call it the Rev War, the Revolutionary War, then I heard you mention the F&I War, which must be the French and Indian War, of course, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's shorthand, and Rev, I picked up. The, I've been doing the living history thing since 1975 when I started. So uh, I, somewhere along the way, I picked up Rev War, and everybody started calling it that. And you were the first. Oh, I don't think I was the first. I heard about. It. I, I'm around, but I go. I'm like the second generation. There, there was it started earlier? Guys like Fred Wall who started 64th Foot. Certainly the George Newman and George Woodbridge and all these guys with the Brigade of the American Revolution. They started in the in the early 60s. And th- those are the those are the giants, and I kind of came in during the bicentennial. I'm what they call a bicentennial baby, and what's interesting is when our group came in during the bicentennial, all the old school, oh, these are just kind of coming in because of the bicentennial, because there's a geometric increase in participation for obvious reasons, and then what happened was as the old guard started fa- phasing out, disappearing, and unfortunately passing away, it's interesting now that we are now the old guard, yeah. and. Uh, the all, say for the 225th anniversary of Yorktown, everybody that was running that thing, for the most part, were bicentennial babies. So all the, oh, these guys are never going to last. They're going to be here a couple years and gone. But there was a core of us that stayed with it. And now we're looking at what's going to happen now. We're not, unfortunately, not getting the influx of younger people to come in and cha- carry forward. There are some. But it, it was this kind of thing. Even these conferences, you look around. Yeah. How many? There's a handful of young people, yeah. and then a few in the middle. But most of them are old, gray-haired guys with you know balding, you know, and women, and you know, it's sad. But all these organizations, the company military historians that I belong to, much old men for the most part, and you get a, like I say, you get a handful, but you wonder where it's going to go. Well, I I think around here we're just uh, in the Mohawk Valley with uh, with the folks putting this conference together. I'm I'm impressed that people come. You know, this is the third year they've done this, 
and I think their their attendance is held in with what it was last year. And yes, they're they are it's an older crowd, but they're visiting here. I mean, that's what's new to us here. I mean, and uh, it's it's been hard to get kind of tourism off the ground, but this seems to be doing it. They're doing a wonderful job, uh, Brian Mack and Norm Gobin with the Fort Plain Museum. They've done wonderful work, and I know Brian was getting nervous about a month ago because he wasn't getting the call call-ins for the for the conference, the registrations, but they were picking up. And I've been set up right across from registration all weekend, and we had they had walk-ins. They had people walking in off the street, signing up to come in. There was a, and so did, at the banquet last night, they, had a, they needed some extra seats because more people were there. They didn't, the, the caterers didn't know about it. Well, and in fact, it got uh, good uh, local news coverage during the event. I know both the uh, Daily Gazette, uh, which I'm affiliated, and the MCM Recorder uh, g- uh, gave pretty, you know, good coverage. Or you know, gave you know, I could see people picking up a paper and say, "Oh, what's this going on right here?" Mm-hmm. It's good. It's a great thing. I love it because it's such a forgotten area by the, elsewhere in the country, and they've done a lot, and they need to because they preserved everything. They've got Fort Plain. They, they don't have Fort Plank, but they've got you know, Fort Clock. They, uh, and all this stuff, the Johnson Hall, Fort Johnson, all they restructured restruct- Stanwix. They got the Herkimer home. This stuff is all here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the Hudson River Valley where I live, we've got a few, but not everything, you know. And so you live in the Hudson River Valley. Uh, tell us about, you know, what's uh, available in your website and all that stuff. You're a little plugged. Okay. Well, like I say, I do, uh, it's called Cottonell Consulting. Uh, it's C-O-N-C-O-N-S-U-L.com, short for Cottonell Consulting. And uh, you can find uh, articles that I've written. You will find uh, our interview last year is out there. We have uh, my uh, books I sell. And uh, information on the greatest hits of the Colonial Chronicle, how to order that. And some pictures of me in my youth uh, when I was young, thin, and good-looking. And uh, it's a nice, eclectic site. There's links to various history organizations and places. And uh, I, I believe you're out there on your Historians podcast is out there. If it's not, it will be. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good place to go and see. It'll give you a good jumping-off point to get into understanding Revolutionary War living history and history in general. It's good for everybody. Well, Phil Weaver, I thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob Cudmore. I greatly appreciate it. I want to thank Brian Mack and Norm Bolin for their cooperation in doing all the interviews for a series of two podcasts about the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference. If you want to know more about the American Revolution, you might want to reserve a seat on the Fort Plain Museum fundraising bus trip to the Museum of the American Revolution and Independence Hall in Philadelphia. I must say, I had not even heard of that organization, but it sounds like it'll be a fascinating bus trip, and it's aimed at raising funds for the Fort Plain Museum. The event will take place in September. The cost is $95 per person. For more information, uh, visit fortplainmuseum.com. And by the way, there's uh, much more information about the fort on that website, fortplainmuseum.com, and they have frequent historic programs through the years. Also, the American Revolution Roundtable of the Hudson and Mohawk Valleys is an active organization. Uh, They've been holding a series of talks. They'll have an event on November 11th, Veterans Day, 
called Military Theaters of the American Revolution. If you'd like more information on the roundtable, you can call Area 518-774-5669. And if you want to know more about the Benedict Arnold documentary, which was discussed at the conference and featured on our previous podcast, visit this website, BenedictArnoldHeroBetrayed.com. That's BenedictArnoldHeroBetrayed.com. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cutmore.